Hello, and welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. I'm your host, Gregory Landway. Great. I'm going to wait just a second. Okay, good. We are set here and um, fantastic. Well, hello, and welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. I'm your host, Gregory Landaway. And today I'd like to welcome Chris Smage, as in Page, <laughs> who's the <laughs> who's the author of um, Saying No to a Farm-Free Future and uh, has appeared on the Doomer Optimism Podcast and um yeah and chris and i have gone back and forth a little bit on twitter after uh, i think a few times but especially after daniel schmachtenberger and i were on the doomer optimism podcast and um i'm just really excited to get to dialogue with you a little bit and dig in a little bit so um maybe we could start with you just giving a quick introduction to yourself and the book that you've just published and just kind of the um yeah just where are you at where are you at with with your head with your vocation and your life's work and then we can dig into a couple of the more interesting edges i think that we can um maybe get some grist into the mill here (laughs) sure yeah well thanks very much for, for inviting me on pleasure to be here and to be talking with you um i mean my background in a nutshell is i um sort of trained as a social scientist basically as an anthropologist um kind of uh, floated around doing normie jobs and things for um, the first sort of 10 or 15 years of my career. And then in the 1990s, I suppose, as kind of climate change and energy issues began to sort of become more apparent and that that kind of narrative kicked off. Um, uh, also, I suppose I was getting a bit disillusioned with academic life. I was I was teaching social science at university. So um, yeah, my wife and I um, kind of embraced permaculture and alternative agriculture bought some land here in um, Somerset southwest England um, a little bit of land um, started a small market garden growing vegetables and sort of doing other stuff um, which was you know interesting challenging um, I guess I've sort of gradually got drawn more back into the the writing and um, um, thinking life you know partly uh, you know I guess thinking of food energy um, localism as as kind of key issues for the day but obviously it's hard to you know it's hard to um, make that work it's hard to, um, to to kind of generalize it so kind of getting drawn back into thinking about that and writing about that so I've um, been doing a blog for about 10 years called Small Farm Future uh, wrote my first book of that name a few years ago and then yeah as you say just published a book um, it's actually Actually not yet out in North America, but coming out, I think, in um, in a week or two, um, just published recently in, here in the UK. Um, yeah, basically a critique of um, uh, sort of eco-modernism and, and, and techno-fixes within the food system, specifically a critique of um, so-called precision fermentation or manufactured food, as articulated by George Monbiot, who um, I, I, he may not be such a well-known figure um, in, in the US, I don't know but he's um He's well known in the in the UK as a journalist um, with a kind of radical green uh, credentials and, um, you know, been very influential on me and a lot of respect for what he's done over the years. But, you know, his book Regenesis that came out last year sort of felt a, a little bit like um, friendly fire on the agroecology movement and embracing um, kind of high tech uh, 
top-down um, food solutionism. Um, and so I felt the need to write the book kind of to critique that and partly to critique, I, I, I think, some of the implicit politics that kind of might sneak through with someone like Monbiot, who, you know, is, is kind of wi widely admired um, sort of on the on the radical left green edge of things over here. Um, so, yeah, I wrote that book, a uh, fairly, fairly quick, short um, uh, bit of writing, but I found it, you know, linking it to that sort of eco-modernist agenda um, was quite a good foil for laying out, you know, my alternative vision. Uh, maybe it's, you know, calling it a vision maybe is a bit grand because, you know, it's it's in some ways it's, um, you know, making the best of a bad job, but yeah, kind of agrarian localism, um, sort of grassroots um grassroots low energy low capital food localism is kind of where i'm coming from um and yeah that's what i, I try and lay out in the book fantastic um thank you for that overview that's that's great so um i mean there's a couple of different directions that we could go i'm definitely interested i mean just to sort of refer i think in your um conversation with ashley and jason on the doomer optimism podcast you, you, you the three of you did a great job of kind of interrogating um, where and I, and I think your book lays this out as well. Just interrogating where that sort of precision. Um, what what's the what's the word that they're using? Uh, precision fermentation and manufactured yeah. food processes fall short due to energy mm -hmm. limitations and kind of you know a little bit of hand waviness of like oh you know we'll magically manifest enough energy for this highly energy intensive uh, manufacturing process yeah. um, and it will. All be renewable <laughs> so don't worry about it you know um so it, yeah, I, I, I don't want to spend too too much time on that because there's sort of prior mm -hmm. art and there's places that people can dig in to mm -hmm. kind of understand that critique more deeply that you you're offering but just to sort of set the table with it to sort of um, is there anything just in terms of table setting that you want to add to that as far as sort of like the fundamental critique here being that the that there's sort of an, an energy blindness and false optimism, the way that the case is presented for this kind of precision manufactured um, industrial lab food vision? No, I mean, you know, the energy side of it is one key thing. And, and you know, the so-called precision fermentation is not the only thing in the world today where people are kind of hanging on to this notion of a of a clean energy transition but you know it is worth bearing in mind that you know so far with agriculture we use uh, free sunlight you know zero carbon sunlight to produce crops so this technology we're saying we're not going to do that um, we're going to use generated electricity and we're going to do it cleanly whilst we decarbonize the whole rest of the energy economy you know so that is a it's a really big ask particularly because it's quite an energy intensive process so, so yeah, I think there's some sort of energy, um, sort of hopium around the whole thing. In, in some ways, the impetus for it is a good one on the basis that, um, you know, we, we produce crops um, with sunlight, but sunlight is diffuse and therefore farming has been diffuse. You know, farming isn't great for wildlife and nature. So, you know, the impetus for it is good in terms of, of, of trying not to spread humanity or spread our agrarian footprint um, over huge swathes of the world but i think you know partly what that critique misses is um the overproduction of, of of crops you know you've got to fit you've got to fit the agriculture within a bigger economic framework of what's of what's driving agriculture and it's a little bit too black and white in my opinion in um you, you know a lot of the bad things that um 
go on, you know, in terms of nature impact with agriculture. It's partly the, the, the spread, which is to some extent to do with economic factors and overproduction. It's partly the, the kind of labour sparing aspects of modern agriculture involving agrochemicals and, um, uh, you know, other, other practices which we know are ecocidal. So, you know, we don't have to quit agriculture. You know, I think we do have to change agriculture radically. And I agree with um, Monbiot or, uh, and the eco-modernists on that. But, you know, we, we don't have to quit it. And there's a problematic social side to it in terms of, um, you know, kind of economies of scale and and and, and kind of um, the monopoly dynamics of it, um, you know, increasing productivity, what happens to uh, the billions of people around the world who are producing food and, you know, how does how does that all play out in terms of urban rural dynamics and, and you know, the, the, the kind of larger geopolitics and, and kind of local politics, urban rural politics you know the energy issues around um uh, sort of trade and food and so on so i kind of try and trace some of those things through in the book um but yeah as you say it's partly the yeah um yeah you, you know if the technology stacked up in energetic terms then you know we could be debating some of those um social economic aspects but the fact that it doesn't really stack up i, I mean I, I kind of think it's a non-starter really and it, it's being driven by um well you know maybe we don't need to go into what's driving it but um yeah as you say i i think it's um you know too much uh energy hopium um underlying it really well we can feel free to go into what you think is driving it but just to sort of summarize what i'm hearing you saying there's sort of there's two elements of this one is just sort of hey wait are we do, do we actually have does this fit within a, a biophysical reality that is conceivably actually better from a um you know calories in calories out perspective number one just sort of like a you know rational reductionist <laughs> engineering perspective show us your work kind of this doesn't seem to be adding up and then there's the other side of this which is sort of aesthetic maybe moral um what is the vision of the society that we want to be living in um mm -hmm. what are humans doing what are vocations what does society look like what's the structure of our relationship with one another and with the greater than human world and you know a bunch of questions about does eating manufactured food out of vats and living in highly dense urban areas lead us to a world that we want to live in or that expresses right. human potential or you know um and you know i'm i get very clearly on the planet with, oh, without uh... <laughs> deleting each other, basically, without right. genociding, genociding one or the other systems. So I'm curious, just how does, does that sound crazy and untenable? Or does that sound uh, reasonable and something worth achieving? And uh, yeah, just curious how that, uh, how that hits you. Well, I, I guess my feeling is that would be great if we could achieve that. And, and I guess one um, advantage of, um, you know, if, if, if we could sort of make that vision stick would be that, you know, I, I think we have this um, kind of have this modern narrative of progress, which I think is, is, is quite damaging, really and the fact that you know everything in the past sucked and we sort of define ourselves a lot by that I mean I'm not trying to argue that things in the past didn't suck but I think we should kind of leave let the past lie and, and kind of focus on where we are so um so yeah if if we could sort of embrace um you know that fullness of um of uh perspective or kind of economic possibility um great you know that the sort of live and let live kind of aspect I mean the trouble is I you know I don't think we can do that 
um, I, I mean, uh, um, I think, you know, we touched uh, on um, the, the, the podcast you did um, uh, with Daniel Schmachtenberger and, um, um, you know, that that was sort of interesting in the sense, um, sorry, are, are you still there? You seem to have disappeared. I'm still here. I just, my, um, oh. sorry, my my <laughs> kids were, we, we have like an outdoor sensor that pings <laughs> when people come up the driveway because we're on a long okay. driveway. We actually do UPS shipping for our maple syrup business and the kids were running oh, back right, right. in front of it <laughs> and it was in the background right, and I was fine, like, sorry, oh no, I need to go shut that sound off because it's at least distracting me and might be distracting listeners as well. So apologies. Yeah, I just... Sorry, I, I, uh, yeah. I, I, I slightly lost my thread there. Oh yeah, I was talking about yeah your other podcast. So, you know, I think there's a really interesting set of issues you were discussing there, which is, you know, how can uh, sort of high energy, high tech, high capital um, society interact with low energy, low tech society? And, and I think as as Daniel, um, maybe you were saying, you know, it's difficult because the, the high energy, um, the high tech thing, um, you know, generally disrupts the lower tech thing. Um, you know, my feeling is that the there isn't really going to be a space, um, you know, in terms of um, the sort of energy uh, futures and the 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 the, the kind of political um, contradictions of of uh, you know the the present moment that 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 kind of high tech, high energy, high capital thing is going to crash and burn. And so, you know, a bit like Jason was saying in that pod, I suppose where I'm coming from is 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 sort of trying to build, um, you know, something um, resilient and. All autonomous um within the shell of that dying system but i mean you know in principle if people if, you know if people were able to 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 um create a, a a persistent high energy urban you know whatever they want you know high high modernist um society um you know i'm not i'm not opposed to people kind of um living the lives they want to live it's just i guess it's it's always about the interactions with other people and the extent to which that is kind of based upon the you know hidden exploitation of others or the or the possibilities for you know for continuing a a, a low tech low energy lifestyle no I, I mean agreed and i think i think that kind of hits the nail on the head which is that you know at least in this framework that i hold when i'm thinking about things if you know if if the urbanized high tech vision of the world needs to wipe out other forms of life of human life like an agrarian like a small form agra small farm agrarian form of life then it's a non-starter. Um, mm. And I think for multiple reasons, for practical reasons and from sort of like my personal, I guess, ethical perspective or or maybe even moral perspective. I mean, so there's a couple of different dimensions here, but I actually want to, um, I want to kind of push a little bit on something that when I listen to you and Jason, and I think there's maybe there's like a ideally constructive dialogue where maybe we're not, we're not quite seeing the same thing. And, um, and there's sort of a naive version of each position, which I don't think is sort of accurate. I don't think that, that the naive version on either side is what people are thinking. But so on one side, it's sort of, I think that sort of building the, this idea that we can build a small farm, agroecological, sovereign system in the shell of a dying 
industrial modernist extractive economy and that we think that it would survive when that economy goes into its death throes is naive. I think once it collapses, the societal unrest, like agrar smallholder agrarian peasants basically are the least powerful <clears throat> on the chessboard when it comes to like real politics and violence and especially technologically extreme violence in which you may have people fighting over scarce resources and you know, just having your small plot and being a farmer does not set you up for survival in that state. In my sort of like read of history, mm -hmm. right? Um, so, so the, then the question becomes: Okay, what is the minimum viable sort of autonomous, sovereign insulation or protection so that so that we do have? Because I also agree, like that system is kind of like rapidly moving over a cliff, and it's sort of like you know, either can we bend it and save it so it doesn't run off the cliff? Cliff, or can we actually legitimately build a system that's insulated enough to survive the turmoil that takes place as it's and you know in some ways we could argue we're already in the middle of the turmoil and it's going to be a rolling mm -hmm. turmoil or royal rolling collapse for a long time or maybe we we haven't even gotten there yet and it's going to be even more um stark and intense um if nothing happens if nothing changes if all things are the same um I, i'll also out myself that I'm I always think things could change right um <laughs> that may be like a naive I, I mean I think it's in some ways it's a uniquely American optimism that's like oh over the next hill there could be something that's just totally different just wait <laughs> so I would admit that I you know I'm infected with something like that particular mind virus but um yeah no so I'll just pause and just see how does that framing strike you in terms of sort of dialogue and asking like, what does that mean in terms of actually a movement towards a small farm future that could survive a collapse? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I mean, I agree with you. I mean, I, I guess where I'm coming from isn't a kind of prepping mindset where, you know, I've got my little farm here with, you know, my, my vegetable beds and, you know, w whatever it might be. And that I think, you know, when the crunch comes, I'll be, um, you know, I'll plant my blackthorn hedge around it and uh, I'll be all right. And <laughs> so, you know, that, that that, that's that's not where I'm coming from. I mean, I agree with you that um, uh, yeah, you know, well, yeah, yeah. I I basically agree that that is not in itself a viable strategy. Um, I suppose the way I framed it um, in um, a small farm future certainly is that there's a kind of geopolitical dimension to it where we're talking about sort of decaying centers of power. So I think if you're any, you know, if you're near the center, um, you kind of have to orient to the center. If you're not near the center, there's a chance um, that the center will no longer um, extend its reach or its hegemony in the way that historically it has. So you will have to innovate. Um, you know, you'll basically have to innovate livelihood localism because otherwise, you'll, you know, you'll you'll be in serious trouble. And I suppose my argument is that maybe um, some of those experiments in local local livelihood autonomy will uh, will work, will will survive, will prove enduring as the other stuff um, falls apart. And I'm not, you know, I'm not I'm not sort of I don't have any kind of um, a sort of teleological view of that that that's bound to happen. Um, you know, that's just kind of where I'm putting my punt. Um, I mean, it's interesting in that you say your reading of history concerning the weakness of the of the peasant. I mean, I think that's uh, you know, I'd I'd sort of agree with that. Um, I suppose where I might dissent is firstly 
we're kind of in this unprecedented you know period where you know i mean i I guess my education was sort of in peasant studies and i've read way too much kind of marxist analysis of um peasant societies and i and i'm beginning to feel that a lot of that is kind of irrelevant because um you know the 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 whole history of that is how were um local people how were local cultivators increasingly incorporated into this you know increasingly energy intensive increasingly connected um kind of global system we don't really have um an awful lot to go on in terms of what happens when that um you know when when you when you kind of start picking apart that that high energy high tech global system but you know we do know that there are people who've um you know figured some things out locally um but you know we're we're sort of flying a bit blind um with with, with a lot of that um I, and I, I suppose the other thing is, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of interested in your work. Not that I mean, I'm, I, um, I'm a, I need to learn more uh, more about it. I'm, I'm sort of interested in this idea of, you know, how do we innovate? How do we how do we sort of connect people? You know, how do we innovate social institutions that create some, you know, appropriately scaled and kind of configured um, livelihood system? I suppose. I mean, I kind of like your your phrase of hand waving. I guess I guess I, I feel like I probably have to wave my hands a bit more than you do because I'm I, I can't quite sort of get my head around you know trying to prefigure that I, I sort of think people are going to be building um uh, you know much more sort of messy local systems that kind of solve immediate problems and I you know I, I can't really build up a picture of of you know how that's going to play in terms of um uh, sort of bigger level political structures because it's too it's too random I guess it's too contingent on unknowable events um but what i would say is that globally historically um people have have striven pretty hard to hang on to livelihood autonomy i mean you think of kind of peasant systems that have weathered um kind of aristocratic ancien regimes and then sort of communist um um collective farms and and sort of clung on grimly through all of that so i suppose i would kind of put a little word in for the peasant being more resilient than you suggest but ultimately um you know I, I kind of feel it's in the lap of the gods and the 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 bigger issue really is to is to start building a kind of a really long-term cultural orientations to um sort of what it means to be to be human locally what it means to create renewable livelihoods what it means to be part of a sustainable or a regenerative ecology which i don't think we can answer kind of a priori or sort of in 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 book form you know is something that we have to contribute to sort of in the long haul um so yeah that would be my you know i think it's a valid um critique um uh you know as a um as an individual or as a, a sort of relatively uh disempowered um small producer uh you you know you really are vulnerable to the whims of the larger system i i guess all i'd say is that's kind of you know that's a given so where do we where do we go from there yeah no i mean i think i agree with all of that i think i i mean my synthesis and you know and then action on all of this has as you were mentioning taken the form of what innovations in society and culture and our economy can we make to realign local communities with ecological health in a meaningful way um that can be self-determined at the local level but also kind of relate to a global context and i think that's the you know in some way it has to also we have one atmosphere and one planet and 
and also um, we have hit this sort of moment in interconnected global dynamics, economics, geopolitics, etc., in which we are very much, it's true that we're global citizens. Um, so, you know, I guess my perspective, and, and I don't know what, you know, I think maybe this is a nascent philosophy, but with a, a growing number of people who are innovating or exploring something very similar is we shouldn't really do do a lot of tech innovation work on things like fermenting food or whatever. I mean, great sauerkraut, awesome. I'm all about it. <laughs> uh, but but I think it's it's more like wow, computation, computers, information technology allows us potentially to scale human coordination beyond what we were culturally capable of doing without information technology. And that's I believe that that is an empirical fact which, you know, plays out with markets or whatever form of like larger techno societal processes, you know, like the market is in a weird way, the first artificial intelligence, like guiding, you know, people competing mm -hmm. over to generate profits and the invisible hand of the market does all sorts of wacky and weird things to people's behavior, right? And it, and it, it changes us as humans, and it changes how we interact with one another, and it changes how individuals interact with society and, and societies interact with one another too. All of that sort of transforms because of this big market game everybody's playing, which is like a hallucination, basically. I mean, it's just a, it's so, so that actually, for me, that gives me hope that gives us, a, we could actually take agency there. That's a place where we can take agency. Um, in order to more deeply value um, local food production, for instance, uh, biodiversity, soil health, um, lifestyles that are reconnective, um, quality over quantity. These things are all culturally choices that we could kind of start to program into our value system and our system of exchange and our system of coordination. That's, um, of course, there's a long winding road to get there and there's lots of challenges to get there, lots of experiments, successful and failed probably. Um, but I don't see a way without um, engaging with that kind of like high technology, you, you know, sort of like almost like cybernetic, cyber physical approach where we're trying to create new digital institutions, essentially, um, to replace right. old bureaucratic institutions um, and explicitly link them to ecological health, essentially as the primary, um, like what I guess in my, my pre figured a vision if we if we reprogrammed profit from the success you have at extracting as much value from every relationship that you have to your success at building resilient right relationships that result in ecological health and we managed to make that switch at a societal level most of the existential problems that we face would i'm sure there'd be other ones there'd be new problems that we would generate, I'm sure, out of that. But most of the existential problems, I think, would shift as you know, sociopathic, greedy people who want to compete in order to, you know, like have have these weird drives, like, like, because there are a lot of humans who are just like, I'm just driven to succeed at all costs, whatever that success looks like, right. And they, in a weird way, like drive a lot of reality. And if and if society pointed them towards soil health, <laughs> 
I think I think we'd have a trans we'd have a radical transformation <laughs> of what was happening. Basically, I, I don't know. That's, yeah. That's well, it's a whole yeah that's, interesting. That's, yeah. <laughs> Very interesting. Um, I mean, I have to confess, I'm um, I, I'm not an economist, and I'm not um a, a very computer techie guy. So when I was listening, particularly to you and Daniel talking, I was like, "Whoa, this is uh, you, you, these are two smart guys." I'm struggling to uh, get my head around this. I listened to it again, and I kind of understood it a bit better, I think. And and I, and I don't know where I where I stand on it, but I, I agree with you. You know, I, I think um, uh, you know, I, I, one of you said in that conversation that you know it's all about sort of re-embedding the market into the commons, and yeah. and I I agree with that. Um, you know, I I guess um, you know, I suppose coming from a more sort of traditional sort of um, you know peasant studies perspective or or whatever, thinking about the moral economy of the peasant, and and I agree with you about the the the, the competitiveness, you know, the need for people to um to sort of be somebody in some way and the disastrous way in which we've made consumerism um, the vehicle for that, which again, going back to the kind of precision fermentation crew, one of their points, which I think is right, is that, um, you know, people want to eat meat, basically. If, if you're poor, uh, you can't afford to, to buy meat. If you get richer, great, you want to buy meat. If if all 8 billion of us are eating meat in the, uh, you know, at the levels that people in the US or in Western Europe are eating it, then, you know, that really is problematic for the planet so we need to do something else what they do is reach for this kind of food tech solution and and i agree with with you i think you're right to critique that you know it's not really about trying to um engineer something that fools people into thinking they're eating meat it's about shifting the kind of the social uh the social system the the the, the sort of judgment of about what makes you a um you know a, a valued member of the community and and you know i guess my argument is that it's about um, you know, the, the peasant way, if you like, is about livelihood autonomy. It's about being able to not necessarily produce lots of meat, but to stay independent and autonomous, um, you know, to produce what you can from, from the land that you have. Um, and that's, you know, that's kind of interesting. I, I mean, I think... Um, yeah, it's it's interesting. I suppose you know your take on the market. I would say is quite an optimistic one. Um, you know, there is the there's the other side. I mean, I, I I don't know. There's different ways we could get into that. In my previous book, I talked a bit about raising pigs on my holding and the fact that I tried not to buy in uh, concentrate feed, but but feed them from what I could produce on the holding. And then when it came to potentially selling the meat, it gets very complicated because, um, you know, it's there's a lot of my there's a lot of my kind of personal values and and, you know, work that you could, you know, you could maybe sort of put a, a money value on my labor time. But it's more about kind of thinking about where the pigs fit into my system. How am I going to feed them? You know, how am I going to manage the wastes on my holding to, you know, to make that an input? And then, you know, you go to market and it's like, um, you know, a pork carcass is, uh, you know, $200 or whatever. I'm like, no, no, I can't, I can't sell it because that doesn't, you know, that 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 is kind of meaningless to me in the context of my processes. And, you know, and the fact is I don't need to sell it um, because I can eat it myself and I'm, I have a kind of relative livelihood autonomy. You know, the whole history of the spread of the market in some ways is, is kind of withdrawing that autonomy from people so that they don't have any choice but to, you know, play this market game. So I I mean, and I like I like the way that I think you're trying to rethink that and reincorporate, you know, a, what I would call a moral economy into that. I guess I I haven't really done that except in a 
in a sort of uh, basically trusting that people will have to do that um, locally. You know, it's a bit like um, Rebecca Solnit's, um, uh, what's uh, the title of her book has escaped me, uh, A Paradise Built in Hell. You know, it's kind of like when um, when you get a disaster, people come together and kind of innovate um, a collective system. So, you know, I guess my thing has been about generalizing that at a, at a more kind of human human to human scale. So I like the fact that, you know, you're trying to think about that um, in terms of a more kind of um, abstract level of social innovation that can make those values kind of stick into what people do. I'm not, I guess, I, you know, I either I haven't fully got my head yet around how you're going about that, or I'm a little bit skeptical as to, you know, kind of how do you get away from that sort of um, commodity fetishism aspect or that, that kind of alienation in moving from my pig as this very, very kind of personal embodied value to how it then figures in um, relationships with other people. And that's where, you know, you meant you, you raised the issue of hunter-gatherers earlier, which is fascinating because, you know, very, very complex social mechanisms by which things like meat or, you know, service between people, um, you know, are, are configured, but they tend to be quite sort of face-to-face, quite, you know, it tends to operate with people who are very much implicated long-term with one another, you know, which is part of my argument about um, household production and, you know, basically um, producing for self rather than producing for market. So I don't know, you know, I, I guess I have some questions about moving between those levels, but, I, you know, I think it's it's great that you're thinking about that because, you know, I think your critique of where I'm coming from, you know, there's definitely some force to that, like how the hell is this going to work, you know, in real time, sort of given the, you know, given where we are in the in, in the globalised and urbanised world that we currently inhabit. Well, it's, and it's, it's maybe it's a similar, this, it, and your critique is similarly forceful and there, and I guess I would distill it as having a movement of local agrarianism and a, a revival of peasant, um, of proud peasants is um, necessary, but not sufficient, right? It, it's like, it has right. to happen. There have to be people who are capable of feeding themselves and thinking critically about, do they commodify their produce or do they choose to, you know, eat it themselves or gift it or have different re- reciprocity related to that in a different way that's based on, a, as you were mentioning, kind of the moral value of what's happening, um, you know, maybe a deeper understanding that's coming from it. That has to happen. And, and it's important to sort of, yeah, I mean, that's just an important capability and set of capacities for humans to have, because in this world in which everyone is just dependent on a machine to, to produce food and people, you know, that there's been amazing science fiction dystopian uh, books about what happens when people are not capable of, you know, taking, like exercising their agency relative to a complex system in order to kind of be productive, right? And so there's just something intrinsically human, like we need examples of that just in order to have like a capable human archetype live in the world at any moment. So, I mean, I think that's super clear to me. Yeah. And that's what worries me about the kind of eco-modernist vision, which is, you know, that we'll let the tech people take care of all of that um you know people living in um you know agrarian people rural people are causing uh, too much destruction so you know let's let's um you know let, let's have everyone living in cities um and you know i think i mean for one thing i don't really buy that urban vision in the sense that um yeah you know urbanism i think is tremendously extractive of of resources you know its footprint you know just kind of goes around and around the world you know in a way that is um 
you know, rural, you know, modern rural living can has a huge footprint as well, but it, it's easier to actually, um, you know, create a, a renewable local footprint in rural um, situations than it is in urban situations. But it's also that uh, I think what I think you were just talking about, that kind of alienation involved that, you know, that we can't, you know, I think we have to be ecological protagonists actually creating livelihood in, um, you know, in community, as it were, with other organisms. And, you know, we can have a, <laughs> excuse me, you know, we can debate, um, you know, exactly how that works and, 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 and different sort of ethical models. But I think what we can't do is, is kind of withdraw from that and, you know, make ourselves these, these kind of godlike denizens of cities who are contemplating nature doing its own thing without us and expect that that is going to be a good outcome either for humanity or ultimately for the natural world. Because I think, you know, we're, you know, we're going to reach out in all sorts of destructive ways if we don't actually, you know, start creating um, culture that's, that's, that's kind of locally implicated within a, you know, within, with, you know, within a wider ecosystem. I want to, I want to sort of address that again. I, I want to go in two different directions um, at the same time. So one of them is to just say, I think in my framework, sort of ethical framework, I would say we actually want a eco-modernist shooting for the stars civilization on Earth. And we want local agrarian civilizations on Earth. And we want hunter-gatherer stewardship civilizations on Earth in a way that hold each other in check, in a way. And make it because the health of that sort of eco-modernist urban civilization, I would argue, probably is only achieved when the young people can get the hell out of there and go work on a farm for a little while or go or go on a walkabout for a couple of years and learn to hunt and gather and kind of vice versa. And it's the respect that it's the respect that that tech civilization doesn't just eat the other two and destroy because it, it's capable of doing that. If we go all in on with our eyes closed and just sort of like hand wave away biophysical limitations and you know sort of James C. Scott style critique of high modernism and all of these other things that urbanism just eats the world and turns us into gray goop or whatever I mean that's the that's right. the end game um I think so. The question so what is it that's what is it? Sorry, go. On. Well, the question is how do you create those? How do you create a relationship between those different life ways that actually mm. creates the checks and balances? I think this is kind of the core question, and mm. I believe that the answer to that question is socio-cultural and economic, right? And and in a way, the hardest one you can envision the norms and mores and other things that might do that, but the hardest one is programming. And so this is where I actually wanted to go is I think fundamental to my vision of all of this is that th there's a premise and that premise is that money can be programmed with values you can program money with values and the and, and similar to your sort of DIY agrarianism right I would say the the experiment of region network in a way is this idea that we could create a set of tools that gives a diverse set of communities the ability to program their e program ecological value into their money system, right? And that the scary thing is doing that at a global level where there's like one centralized bureaucracy that is like the, the Fed or the central bankers that get together and they're programming the money with their
their values and what they think. The the dynamism though of communities having the tools, and but this requires a capability and a capacity to sort of democratize techno-economic thinking in a way that then people have a toolkit that they can start to exercise their agency and say, we're programming our values into our money and this is what it means, right? And it has to be simple enough and accessible enough to achieve that kind of coordination. And the, the you know, the, the gambit, I guess, and I don't know, I wouldn't say, I would say that like the likelihood that this works is fairly low, but I think it's, it's sort of possible. It's sort of, you know, it's the, you know, yeah, it, it seems possible. It seems viable and doable, but it also seems um, low probability to work. It's going to require a lot of um, luck and effort um, to make it possible is that if we get a critical mass of humans, it's, you know, at a global level, programming ecological value into their systems of exchange, right? The tools are easy enough to do that. Then all of a sudden, this sort of intrinsic ecological value actually of agrarian stewardship of landscapes and of hunter-gatherer stewardship of landscapes becomes irreplaceable in the urban economic, um, in the urban economy. Like it becomes irreplaceably valuable to have those, you know, that that becomes in a way that becomes a driver of um, like that you relate status and um, prestige and value generation to the unique outputs that those cultures can create in a way that an urban eco-modernist culture could never create. It has no hope of creating. Um, mm. yeah. yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I suppose to get my head around that, I'd, I'd want to ask you a few things. I mean, you, you know, you, you, you sort of raise the idea of eco-modernist urbanism being something to um, espouse in its own terms, provided it doesn't, um, you know, ex reach out and destroy everything else. I suppose, you know, so one question I'd have is what is it that you're one, what is it that you're looking to preserve about that? Um, and I suppose in terms of, you know, it's interesting, this idea of embodying values in money. So, you know, if, if you're, um, if we're talking about local agrarian societies, um, what, where does money, uh, you know, if you, if you take my sort of, you know, your sense of my um, arguments about a small farm future and, and, you know, it's really interesting having this conversation with you because, you know, these are aspects that I haven't really thought through um, um, in any great depth. Um, but, you know, what would a, a relatively self-reliant agrarian society, you know, what, what would money look like for them? Why would they be wanting to embody their values in money rather than in the more tangible aspects of everyday livelihood production? <coughs> Excuse me. And then I suppose the third question is, is this, you know, when I'm thinking of Monbiot's writings, um, just as an example, but, you know, his recent writing, he's been very dismissive of you know my sort of take on things you know he talks about you know romanticism or a bucolic idyll or whatever so I'm just wondering do you think there is is there room for a kind of respect between eco-modernists and local agrarians or is you know I, I guess you know we get these kind of symbolic systems money being one but also a kind of narratives of progress which is where the eco-modernists are coming from which uh, you know the eco-modernist manifesto of 2015 was in my view a 
little bit scathing about you know hunter gatherers are oh, you know such an inefficient way of producing a livelihood you know we've got this this whole kind of progress narrative that um you know tends to frame those agrarian alternatives as as some you know backward looking luddite you know bucolic whatever and you know i've written quite a bit trying to sort of unpack that and critique it but i'm just wondering where you would see you know how would you be able to sort of head off that as a as a oops i'm throwing bits of my tech around here um how would you be able to sort of head that off as a as a way of creating that more um uh, you know that that more sort of multivalent set of systems great questions uh so i'll start i think i got each of them um so first one, like what is intrinsically um, redeemable or important about eco-modernism? Um, so I'd say two things. I, I, I mean, the ability to maintain um, specialized scientific and technological um, infrastructure. Um, again, specifically the ability to, you know, in, engage as a, in, you know, potentially become an interplanetary species. Um I think is important both aspirationally for many people. Um, and I tend to be a, you know, I tend to believe that our role is we are life creating life. And that's sort of in some ways uh, the purpose of, you know, what it means to be a human on planet Earth is to garden and protect and um and you know even spread life um you know with caution and care not not with arrogance and flippancy but there's something there that you know i think is intrinsically valuable and important about the systems and structures of sort of modern um kind of post industrial society in which we have these capabilities and that those capabilities <clears throat> We've, you know, and and I think I it would give me even greater grief than I already have around the cost to the planet and the cost to humanity over the years of generating those capabilities if they were to just like disappear, right? And so I have maybe a maybe a romantic desire that 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 those capabilities that have been born out of our generation of technology be perpetuated in some way. That but it needs to be limited. It's like it, it has to be restored strained so as to be sort of responsible and in service to as Daniel Schmachtenberger was saying like we need to shift that and you know that the technology and society that sort of eco-modernism really needs to be grounded in service to the, the wise and the beautiful and the true not just to you know whatever you know idols false idols of greed and um and all the rest <clears throat> and on a so that's sort of like the intrinsic value or the hope or the sort of like the moral side of the vision of like the, oh there's an aesthetic um, there's an aesthetic thing worth preserving there from my perspective from a sentimental perspective in a way i also think as i mentioned spacefaring civilization and several key technologies that are only capable like information technology that we're only capable of maintaining through that kind of that civilization has a gift to kind of help help regulate a planetary system with humans being a part of it right and we will get ourselves into the tragedy of the commons or the tragedy of the market or you know various different game theory challenges 
is as agrarian society if we don't have tools and wisdom to help us sort of get past those things, right? And we will, you know, erode, we will actually, I believe, deeply erode our, like the biosphere and one another if we're just doing, even smallholding, smallholder farmer, even peasants, like we can eat the world right out from under ourselves, right? And that's a valid critique of the eco-modernists, right? And, and there are tools that can help. However, those tools aren't necessarily like big fermented food batches. They're actually, in my mind, they're coordination tools, they're information tools, they're economic tools, right? They're the ability to create transparent coordination systems and self-govern and set boundaries and thresholds with one another and opt into that. They're, they're the tools of digital, like dynamic digital constitutions. And, you know, and again, like, uh, and I'll sort of shift into the, the money system now. So like, look, um, if local communities don't take responsibility for programming their values into their money, the dominant money will infiltrate quickly and you'll have Zapatistas drinking Coca-Cola and you'll have, you know, agrarian farmers moonlighting as authors like that because of the demands of the, 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 the demands and the possibilities, the, the nice things and the problems. And you then you have all the issues with commodification and and relationships becoming transactional because that that monetary system just infiltrates immediately unless you have a significant enough and efficient enough system where you can get people to buy into the true value of your pork, right? As a, as a relationship generator and to sort of visualize it and see it and have it be a tangible alternative in their day-to-day -day systems of exchange. I don't believe that simply the sort of like moral and cultural fortitude of a small community is enough um, to sort of stand in the face of, you know, modern economic maximalism. There are a few examples in which it is, but even they are very like, if you squint, you might ask, is this really, you know, <laughs> what's really going on deeper here? And how deeply has the monetary economy, for instance, sort of infiltrated the Amish community, for instance, right? Um, <clears throat> so anyway, there's, an, and, and at what costs, you know, societally to like maintain the outward pushing othering of everyone else? What is the cost of that? to the sort of like the human psyche and the culture that, that people are living in. So I believe there is actually, you know, and this, and this belief is uh, uh, admittedly like this hypothesis is um, I, I don't have a huge amount of evidence. It's just a belief that I have that with computer with, with computers aiding us, we can create local economic tools and we can program in our values and we can push back sort of global money in favor of local money that at more deeply and accurately reflects our ecological context and our social context and our cultural context. And that, and I have a belief that actually, you know, um, the a local community's ability to have sovereign money is a forgotten human right. And it's a human right that every, you know, I look at history, you know, sort of through the lens of, um, someone like David Graeber, right? And I see the evidence of sort of like money and accounting and exchange systems everywhere being ubiquitous, that there was a 
giant diversity of ways from marks on sticks to shell beads to specific commodity crops that became the unit of exchange that people chose a symbolic unit to be the anchor of their socioeconomic agreements with one another, right? And that that, if we reclaim that and we really work hard to innovate and sort of like work on programming that, we actually have a tool that could fulfill this vision of sort of like small uh, agrarian, bioregional, regenerative communities <clears throat> that could have a relationship also with urban centers, right? <clears throat> um, through exchange, where you set the rules, you program the rules, like you're only going to exchange given this because you're going to take into account <clears throat> resource limitation and thresholds and nutrient leakage and all of these other things. You could sort of, you know, you could grok how that, you know, th that can be kind of um, programmed into things. Um, do I think that a respect between local agrarians and eco-modernists is possible? Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I, I mean, that's a great question. I think, um, I mean, I think it, it's possible, yes. Um, I think in the current environment of polarization, um, I don't know, you know, what's possible. Um, my, my guess is, um, I, I guess I'm betting that we can achieve some system of detente between these different life ways um, by interrogating what is the unique gift that that life way is capable of giving to the whole system and making sure that that's a acknowledged and valued clearly. And that's sort of like, in from there, I'm kind of borrowing um, almost like neoliberal ideas, right? That that you do need to achieve sort of like a system of trade relationships between potentially warring tribes, as it were, or whatever, to kind of like bring them into a, a larger society, right? And that's been, you know, people still debate whether that succeeded or failed or, you know, whatever. But, you know, I, I, it's it but I have this idea that, you know, if, and, and you know, and, and furthermore, I guess I would say I would anchor this all in saying, I believe that each of these different approaches to civilization, as it were, has the, the unique value that each brings really should be rooted in ecological health, right? As the, the what everybody needs to contribute to. And so hunter-gatherers and traditional indigenous societies are currently, even presently to this day, stewarding 80% of the biodiversity of the planet, right? So clearly there's something unique. And if you talk to them, they're they're not like, oh yeah, it's that biodiverse because we just left it alone. No, they're saying, no, it's that biodiverse because we've had an active mutual gardening relationship for 10,000 years. That's how it came to be this healthy is because we've been caring for it, not just because we left it alone, right? And, and you know, and I think the same is true for like a well-functioning agroecology system with immense agroecological biodiversity and and wildlife and um you know and and in a way i think the same is true for the sort of like urban core in the appropriate way and so the question is can everybody see that gift that's unique to each of those different approaches um i see it i don't know if other people can um how do you want to sh shall i respond to that or have you got other things you want to um... I'm, I'm good yeah i feel like <laughs> i talked far too long i'd love to hear your response yeah no well it's it's really it's it's really interesting interesting conversation 
conversation. I mean, I, you know, I largely agree with what you've said. I think maybe we just have different ways or, you know, different, you know, slightly different kind of lenses from which we're we're sort of looking at the same thing and, and, and coming to similar conclusions. I mean, in relation to eco-modernism, I agree with you that it would be great to preserve, um, you know, as much of the infrastructure and, and um, you know, knowledge capabilities uh, as we, well, not, not as much, you know, there are some things, you know, <laughs> yeah, the right thing. to preserve as much as right we can, thing. you know, the, yeah. yeah, preserve the right things. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess that leads into, you know, where I kind of think of eco-modernism, you know, not, not really as about uh, the tech or, you know, preserving the good infrastructure more as a kind of ideology, you know, more as a form of modernism, really, which is saying, which, which is a kind of social ideology of progress, essentially. Um, so, I, you know, in as much as we're not talking about those social ideologies of progress and and, 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 and and a sort of, you know, telos towards some kind of mass technical goal, but actually the, the nuts and bolts of, of, of you know, the, the, the kind of tech, um, you know, the sort of tech grounding that we have to do good things, then I would agree with you. I think that, you know, the difficulty is when the, it's kind of when the, the, the social ideology of progress appropriates for itself or clothes itself sort of in the raiment of technology that, you know, that can be, that, that can manifest in many different other ways. And I think, you know, kind of what you're saying is that it should manifest in other ways. And and, and I agree with you there. So, so yeah, so that's kind of cool. Um, the, um, yeah, in terms of the sort of value um, embodying values I mean that's that's really interesting I guess I and, and life life creating life I mean I in my in my new book I talk about tr tr you know trying to become a, a good keystone species um, uh, you know the, the the idea of a keystone species being that it kind of has a you know a particular species that has a disproportionate impact on on other species um, you know a lot of species are very kind of specialized niche um, occupiers that um, you know that, that, that are very skilled at tapping a, a kind of recalcitrant um, source of energy, whereas you get, you know, creatures like humans are these kind of big blundering things that just kind of, you know, crash around and, 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 and make stuff happen, which is great up to a point, but then becomes destructive you know as it as it now has done if you go if you go beyond that point so part of um you know here in the uk uh, for example people are reintroducing the beaver that was hunted to extinction um several hundred years ago and the idea is that beavers are great because they fell trees and create all these kind of niche habitats that then other organisms come into so um so i kind of like that idea of life creating life i mean i'm not so sure about the interplanetary aspects i kind of think we need to get this planet sorted out first but you know definitely Definitely, um, that aspiration um, seems important. And I suppose, you know, it's interesting, you know, your point about money there. Um, I mean, I wonder, yeah, I, you know, I, I wonder to what extent, you know, money is such a kind of quantified abstraction. You know, are we, I mean, I, I think we're both agreeing that we need to, um, you know, we need to find a different way of embodying um, regenerative values. Um, you know, the question is, uh, and I agree with you that money, you know, if you don't attend to it, the, 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 you know, the kind of existing monetary systems can just kind of crash in there and, and, and do their thing. I mean, increasingly, I wonder whether the way around that is disorder, you know, sort of cost of living crisis here, people
people, um, you know, just being kind of impoverished by the, the 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 kind of extractive, you know, the great suck of the of the existing system. So people are kind of having to innovate their way around that. But if we could do that, um, you know, within um, within the kind of abstractions of money, that would be good. Um, I don't know. I'm not sure about that. I'm not. You know, to to some degree, I see us looking at a more chaotic future in which a lot of these systems are kind of breaking down locally and there's going to be a lot of kind of waste a lot of stuff knocking around you know sort of emerging out of this huge um you know materially um high velocity kind of systems that we've had so you know i suppose i'm i'm perceiving a slightly more chaotic um manifestation of that but i agree with you that if people you know if if, if people could um mobilize that more rationally in monetary systems that would be a good thing um i suppose the you know but then that brings us on to the third thing i mean i, I suppose you know here in the uk we had brexit um um you know in, in in 2016 and that you know i think people as we face these kind of systemic shocks my worry is that we're not really carefully creating those systems but um you know the oh that yeah that's what i was going to say you know i i agree with you about trying to use this computational um ability we have or sort of communication abilities because as you say you know it's hard to get away from the the, the globalism of the moment and yet you know what seems to be happening is we get these kind of crazy ideas like brexit i mean it's not entirely crazy in the sense that the eu is is a strange beast but the way that brexit was sold here in the uk it sort of became this um uh, you know this magic incantation you know taking back control brexit you know once once we've got brexit done you know everything's going to be great and then we find that oh actually um you know it, it wasn't so great but you know boris johnson you know was this kind of you know you tend to get these kind of weird charismatic political figures that sort of mobilize some strange mythical idea that's going to solve everything so i suppose my question is um it would be great if we could see through those sort of characters that you know and and really start start kind of backing ourselves as people with meaningful values in local systems um you know to to to, to um generate the kinds of service to ourselves that we need i mean i guess that's where i came into this and i think you you know you've sort of you're basically saying the same thing but with an emphasis on on money and 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 sort of computational power and i certainly agree that you know we have to communicate with each other about this um it, you know it's interesting when you look at historic you know agrarian commons of the past because they were always very specific um to a um you know the ones that endured were specifically geared to solving a problem you know they weren't some kind of bit of ideological political fluff like you know make america great again or take back control <laughs> they were kind of grounded in actually how to manage a resource um so they were specific but they were also you know in game i mean i'm not a great game theoretician but you know they were also sophisticated in game theoretic terms and not being starry-eyed about human motivation but figuring out ways to um make everybody play along so i think um yeah if we can do that i mean i think we're basically on the same page in terms of you know, where we're at and where we need to go um you know the question is you know, can we um you know 
yeah, I, I, I have some remaining uncertainties about once you sort of dip into this pool of great abstraction and great, um, um, you know, the, the the kind of infrastructure and labour that's behind these complex systems, like, you know, like the kind of computational powers that are, that are enabling us to communicate right now. You know, can we um, can we emerge from that with um, our values and our autonomy intact? I'm not yet quite persuaded, but I, you know, but I I think it's great that um, you know that people are thinking about this, and you know that that's where that's where we need to be um, investing our, our best collective selves in that in that um, you know. In, in, in that question, I think. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I mean, I think we certainly won't come out of it with our ideals and values unchanged. Definitely not. Um, th there will be a dynamic process that those ideas and values evolve. Um, and that might be disgusting to some people mm -hmm. um, um, <clears throat> and like reason to, to not proceed. Um, you know, as you were talking, I was just thinking about, you know, uh, I mean, first off, I definitely, I, I really resonate with the, the concept of the key keystone species and that humans sort of taking <clears throat> responsibility as a keystone species is really core. <clears throat> um, and what does that look like and how do we do that, I think is really a great question. It's sort of like the key question, really. Um, so I really resonate with that. And I was just thinking, you know, actually, there's some people in the region network community who are working on beaver credits right now. And they're working on both sort of like uh, crediting for like sort of for reintroduction of beavers, but also crediting for humans doing beaver analog activities in places in landscapes that don't have beavers to sort of rebuild wet meadows in California and you know do all of this different work that's really important which actually sets the stage for beavers to be reintroduced into uh you know um, significantly more intact habitat for them so you know it's it's exactly the kind of example which is you know and, and I don't know you know what happens when we I guess I think of it in, in its most straightforward way way, the more livelihoods we have at a global scale associated with humans behaving as, you know, active regenerators of landscapes or stewards of healthy functioning agroecological systems or preserving and tending wild land, <clears throat> the better. <laughs> this is like, that feels like if we were going to, over the next 10 years, have a, you know, have a linear metric as dangerous as those things might be, you know, that one would probably be an, a fairly safe one for at least a period of time. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting. The, the, the beaver credit idea is, is really interesting. And I think, you know, again, going back to the critique in my recent book, I think one thing Thing is that we do have to be you know we do have to intervene i think you know we do have to embrace that that being a keystone species um idea rather than hoping that we can somehow withdraw to um the city and just let nature and let our you know let our sort of manufactured food feed us and 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 and, and withdraw you know i think we have to as i was saying earlier we have to be protagonists i suppose my question with eva credits is are there ways can that be gamed in a way that undermines it in the sense so, you know, I suppose my feeling is if you're an agrarian on a small holding, um, you know, you might not care about nature at all. That, that's, I mean, yeah, again, I touch on that in the book. I think, you know, one of the issues in the past when we look back to part, a lot of past models is that people didn't really have much sense that um, there were sort of globally finite resources, but they did have a good sense of local finite resources, which is where the commons came in. You know, they were good at preserving local resources, um, but they were quite capable of going somewhere else 
else and smashing the place apart, you know, either because they didn't care about people there or didn't really have a sense of, you know, of, of, of there being ultimate limitation. Um, but I suppose I'm wondering whether, I mean, it's great. I, I agree with you. If we can find ways to make it feasible for people to access land, I mean, ultimately, some of this is about the politics of access to land, but also then to, to be protagonists where you're getting ecological feedback. So if you don't have, um, you know, if you're not looking after your watershed or if you're not creating good wetland habitats, you know, that rebounds on you in some way, but you have to be attuned, you know, and possibly multi-generationally attuned to learning um, all of those lessons. If we have a kind of, if, if you know, if quite rightly we're trying to innovate this now within the, you know, the very abstracted and very globally linked systems that we have and say, you know, you get beat. I mean, I'm, you might need to explain to me a bit more what a beaver credit is, but, you know, I suppose my question is, is, is there a danger there of that abstraction becoming another form of, of, of gaming that enables people to extract value from a system that, you know, where we shouldn't be extracting value from it, where, you know, we, we need to be, you know, putting our values into the system? I, I, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, yes, possibly. I mean, I think to answer that question, you know, to what degree can any given um, crediting, eco-crediting scheme become a vehicle for value extraction? Um, you know, I think we have to level set around the role of speculation in society. And um, my, you know, my sense is, and I could be wrong, but my sense is, um, given you've mentioned Marx several times, <laughs> and mentioned kind of the commodity, you know, and, and Marx's critique of capitalism is heavily based on really shitty economics. He was a very bad e econ economist. Um, he was brilliant thinker, um, brilliant sociologist, I would say, and like mediocre economist, it's like C plus or something. Um, and, you know, I, I, and I think unfortunately, like in the, the meme sphere of the left, a lot of his crappy e economics thinking has continues to sort of be mimetic dogma of like how systems work. Um, so, you know, I, I would say my perspective is that speculation is can be incredibly dangerous and also can be incredibly generative. And and this sort of like process of re-embedding markets into commons is the process of sort of um, answering when and how is speculation allowed and what are the rules under which that speculation plays out. Um, and do we want to create games that incentivize people to throw a bunch of high-risk capital to rapidly re-beaver the world? Um, and to what degree, if it succeeds, do those people get to extract value out of that success because they risked either their capital or their time or both, you know, or both in, in certain circumstances. Um, and I think sort of like a naive sort of revulsion to that is one of the bigger challenges that we face in engaging with otherwise people who would probably be big allies in terms of like, hey, wouldn't it be great to have right livelihoods associated with this action? Cool. Who's going to fund it? And how do we build a network of institutions or individuals or businesses that are directly funding something that is of great ecological um, importance, right? And you do really have to answer this question kind of in a cold and calculated way, yeah. in a case-by-case -case basis of, um, you know, what will the role of speculation be in this circumstance? And what's the right equation of value extraction for risk in, in order to achieve the thing? Yeah, that's really interesting. I like your point about the generative aspects of speculation, which I think is true. And, you know, well, it's funny, 
yeah you mentioned david graver i mean i quite like his sort of thing about how you know his going through the the, the history of people writing about um uh, landlordism and never finding a, a good word in the in the history of humanity for the landlord whereas you know you could argue there is generative that there's kind of monopoly rent which is negative but also um you know uh, kind of creating creating livelihood as well so i, I agree with that and i mean it's funny my background is um you know well kind of taught by marxists but also by agrarian populists um you know and it's a sort of interesting tension there but i've sort of yeah i've had my marxist critics you know in in in, in terms of precisely that kind of um you know somewhat millenarian notion that there will be uh, you know a, a kind of revolutionary overthrow of where we're at and then um uh, you know and then it all works out you know <laughs> so, and, and, and then it'll all so, be fine we will have yeah we, yeah yeah after the revolution yeah there's a sort of i'll be good <laughs> yeah there's kind of a notion of sort of an absolute knowledge which is interesting so i you know i i, I take your point but i i suppose but it's interesting that thing about absolute knowledge because i i suppose i still wonder you know there's just so much complexity you know i, I just sort of sometimes think you know, humans you know we're we're so smart that we're we're not quite smart enough to realize that you know i, I don't know it's kind of like the is it the donald Rums, rumsfeld known unknown things you know i think with you know with the sort of trying to create a kind of beaver um uh, you know trying to engineer our way as a keystone species i think that the feedbacks are so fantastically complicated that i suppose you know i keep coming back to the notion of being implicated in it in terms of feeling that that feedback quite personally whereas i wonder you know i suppose that you know we, we come to the old critique of the speculator is that they you know they've got this kind of liquidity where they can sort of exit the system so i suppose it's something about gaining gaining a reward for um you know for investing but not being able to exit it you know in some sense having to um you know make your bed you have to lie in it kind of thing yeah i think i'm very um much a proponent of um different arrangements that have no exit or have deeply or deeply punish exits right where you're like great you get all of these cool groovy rights because you took this capital risk and it's you know we're going to treat you really great while you're inside the system but if you want back out again you basically got to just drop it and leave it and like you know (laughs) and like see you later like nice nice knowing you you know but but i tend to think we need to experiment like i i think we need to i I kind of agree it's like we just don't there's enough complexity and i think there's enough situational uniqueness um sometimes maybe i feel feel like i have a sense of kind of like an emerging pattern language that kind of expresses trends in right relationship related to these questions of value, valuing regeneration and vocation and livelihood, um, and I guess like resource allocation to achieve those things. Um, But then other times I'm like, well, I actually don't even, I mean, maybe I don't even feel like I have a glimmer of what that might look like yet. There's definitely, and and the hardest thing I would say is that there's the the dominant paradigm, the dominant like market maximalism and narrative of progress all makes interrogation and designing unique situations quite hard in a lot of ways because it wants to impose a standard logic onto everything that does tend to 
make it completely status quo for, you know, a speculator to just like drop everything and leave with, well, you know, or not drop anything and leave with everything, right? And just sort of like have a system exit be just like the norm, right? Um, but I don't think, but that's a choice. I, I think that's like, that's a societal choice in the contract law between the counterparties that makes that possible, right? So there's nothing intrinsic to me sort of like speculating on an outcome and making an arrangement with people based on the success of that outcome um, that I get the rights to just pack up and leave after it succeeds and, and drain all the value. Or if it looks like it's going to fail, pull the rug out or whatever. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, my sense of some of the history of agrarian commons is, you know, you get these situations where everybody is more or less in the same boat in a, um, you know, in a particular agricultural setting. And that's where, you know, and there's a lot of work that has to go into setting up a commons. So people tend to avoid it and do their own thing if they can. But certain things you have to organize um, collectively. And, and you know, part of the power of it is the reputational damage, you know, because you have, to, you know, these are your people in your community. You know, if you if you're seen to be, um, you know, gaming or sort of extracting more than your share or whatever, you know, that's not going to be good for you in the in, in the long term, because, you know, because you don't have anywhere else to go necessarily. But then you get the other thing. But that's a kind of that. And again, I think, you know, Graeber, Graeber and Wengro's stuff is good on this. You know, that that's one mode in which humans operate quite happily over long periods, sort of egalitarian mode, if you like. But then you can flip into hierarchical mode where some big guy comes along. And, and I've kind of seen this locally where you get a, a philanthropic, a wealthy philanthropic person genuinely wants to do good things with their money, but they're kind of accustomed to doing things on their terms. And, you know, it kind of the fact that they have money to spend sort of, uh, you know, it points the power too much towards them. So things tend to, you know, what happens is either it falls apart and everyone ends up alienated or, you know, you get the, you know, the big guy with the lackeys, the, the kind of the bully in the system that kind of breaks apart the commons and, and, and you know, and then you, you sort of get into hierarchical mode, which, and once that's got going, you know, that can be quite hard to, um, to, to kind of engineer your way out of. So I'm not really sure where I'm going with that, but I kind of, you know, I, I think it's, we're, we're so much in, you know, there's so much kind of liquidity globally that's in the hands of the relatively few that I kind of agree with you that, you know, somehow we need to make that, um, you know, put that in service of, of, of regeneration and, uh, you know, and a lot of people that, that have access to that, you know, including me in many ways in my small way, genuinely want to, want to do that. Um, and yet it's quite difficult in terms of that, that kind of human micro politics of the, you know, of, of, of equality versus, um, you know, sort of hierarchical power as it were. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's complicated, it's, it's complicated and fraught by uh, no doubt about it. Well, I, I'm actually curious to kind of, um, go a little bit deeper on your, um, sort of academic focus in the past. Um, you've mentioned several times kind of studying, um, you know, agrarian commoning and peasant, um, sort of peasant studies. Um, yeah. So I'm just curious, um, you know, was that, yeah, just hear a little bit more about what you were studying and how that's informed your perspectives um, right now. Right. Yeah, interesting. I mean, I've, I've sort of, you know, one of my problems is I've been all over the place and <laughs> not stuck at things. But yeah, I mean, I originally I sort of did um, sort of peasant studies, um, partly, yeah, 
with um, people broadly informed by Marxism. Um, so it was very much, um, you know, how are you know how are, how are peasantries, you know, how are they going to come to an end? You know, this whole kind of modernization kind of mindset around it. But I was also taught um, Paul Richards um, at University College in London wrote a great book, um, Indigenous Agricultural Revolution. So you know, he his work has very much been about you know at the time when the, there was the Green Revolution and very much you know it was kind of eco modernism Mark One in some ways very much that sort of notion that clever plant breeders were going to solve um, the problems of global hunger and all the rest of it and then you know that fell apart in various ways and Paul's research was essentially showing I mean his research was based in West Africa showing the ways in which um, um, West African peasant farmers um, is uh, kind of the point you were making earlier about indigenous peoples being custodians of enormous um, knowledge and plant you know crop biodiversity and sort of innovative growing techniques and and sort of innovative um social mechanisms so that that sort of rubbed off on me but um yeah i kind of i was interested in that um oh the other thing i, I had a brief ill-fated um uh, attempt to do a phd in anthropology at, at uh, johns hopkins in baltimore so i was taught by sydney mintz um who wrote um uh i mean he was a, a, a kind of world systems anthropologist focusing on the caribbean so i mean that's i think marxism at its best in a way is that kind of historical marxism at looking at the way that power um kind of um operates through colonial systems and you know sugar is a or cotton you know sort of classic one in which um you know market mechanisms force you know they bring you know essentially it was europe wanting to connect to asia um using enslaved african labor in the americas you know to to sort of create these very uh, you know to create huge amounts of value but in extremely violent and repressive ways so you know so i guess that has sort of rubbed off on me um but then you know i spent 10 15 years doing other things and i you know i mean the irony of when i was interested in peasants as a as a young student was that I had no, you know, I didn't know anything about farming or growing. You know, I don't come from a from that kind of background. So, um, so it's only in recent years when I've actually, you know, sort of, uh, yeah, become an agrarian myself, and some of these things start to make a little bit more sense. And then just reading around the history of commons and so on, you know, I, I guess I've done a lot of reading in the last 10, 15, 20 years, just as a sort of independent scholar. Um, but you know, so it does connect to that original academic background. Um, um, but yeah. Really really just um, sort of as a slightly naive stepping out of academia, you know, trying to run a small farm, sort of experiencing um, the, um, the, the the kind of coldness of the global food system, obviously not to anything like the extent to which, um, you know, people enslaved in in in, in it historically or, or, you know, poor farmers in the global south today. But, you know, you do you do kind of get a sense of how the um, how markets um, uh, work in a way that, um, you know, doesn't doesn't necessarily gen generate local value you know um yeah so i suppose it's been a process you know i feel like i've been a quite a slow learner in my life of slowly piecing together these um you know these these different elements but yeah i mean that that that's then that's it in a nutshell but i mean i like yeah I, I like the idea you know where you're coming from of trying to you know accepting this huge systemic connection and this huge liquidity that we have and trying to work out what how the hell to make that work for the kind of regenerative outcomes that we need um but yeah, it's a tall order. But you know, basically anything we do from here on is a tall order. You know, so, so and 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 as you were saying earlier, I think we need to experiment. You know, and again.
again, that is one of the problems. I think uh, not that I want to circle back too much to George Monbiot, but that's one of the problems. Yeah, there is this style of thinking that we still have, which is some guy, you know, you sort of um, you, you 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 sort of go on this quest and and sort of see all the all the problems with the world, and then it's kind of like, hey, presto, I've got the answer. You know, the, the last chapter of my book is is this kind of um, you know pulling down from on high this this technology or this big idea that's going to solve it all. And you know, I guess I'm I've, I've become um, kind of opposed to that sort of solutionism where there's you know there's 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 this kind of single or particularly a technical answer. But I think the level that we've been engaged in this conversation is I think where we need to be, which is somewhere different. You know, it's not this kind of um, here's the answer, folks. In you know in the in the concluding chapter of my book, you know, and that and I guess that's a difficulty I've had talking about my critique as well. It's it's kind of like okay, so no to a farm free future so you know so so you know what is the answer and you know it's hard to say well that you know there is no answer there is no one single answer it's about um making ourselves um you know local protagonists about creating that value but i think it's really important you know what i'm getting from your discussion that's useful is not overly focusing on the local you know the the need to um you know the, the need to use the tools of connection that we have um to try and um you know to to, to try and generalize that at the same time i think there is you know there is always um or very often there is a tough local politics of access to land which is you know historically different everywhere but nevertheless generally means that a lot of people don't have access to creating that livelihood and that you know uh, going back to you know the the marxist thread of this you know i think my my take on that is not that once the people have access to, to the land and you know they'll create some wonderful collective institution that will solve everything but nevertheless i think um you know a politics of land access i think is sort of in the background to everything that we've been talking about yeah definitely i mean yeah definitely and and there's a i think there's a lot of creative ways to deal with land access some of which you know could potentially kind of be embedded into the sort of current private property you know land monopoly game system that's getting played and uh and some of which are actual actually deeper you know reforms of our approach to what what does it even look like to be stewarding landscapes and yeah and there's actually there's a lot of interesting work and in where those two things sort of intersect where you kind of can kind of hack the legal system with you know land trusts or rights of nature sort of organizations and rebuild sort of humans belonging to a place and structuring that into things and um but it certainly is a far cry from the norm right because we definitely do live in a world in which there are a few people who own and and businesses who own huge amounts of land and can essentially do as they please with that land and mm. what they mm. usually are trying to do is extract as much value from the land and anyone who's working on it as possible like yeah. that's definitely the norm and we de- we shouldn't yeah. be and we shouldn't be um you know we shouldn't forget that that's that's true and that, that particular set of behaviors you know is is really deeply detrimental to the humans as a keystone species premise um yeah and, and degrade well, diff- go ahead no, i was gonna say no i mean i completely agree i mean the other difficulty i think is that a lot of people locally you know they do want to do um the right thing with local land but but a lot 
lot of we've sort of lost touch with what the right thing is you know we're, we're kind of so alienated from knowledge of um food production and you know what's um um yeah you know a lot of people don't even really know where to start and 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 we are all so dependent ultimately on fossil energy or you know high energy high capital inputs so I, you know it always feels like we're starting from a very low base you know we need we need um you know we need communities to sort of take an interest in local food and uh, and food production and i think people increasingly are which is great uh and experiment as you know as we've been saying experimenting and not not all the experiments are going to work and that's you know that's inevitable and that's also a good thing and sharing knowledge but it you know it feels to me like we are um yeah you know we we're, we're just uh um you know we're only one or two throws of the dice from go at the moment when we need to be further down the the road because you know we've we've lost a lot of kind of collective knowledge of of low energy food production i guess right <clears throat> and it's and we live in this information environment in which i mean it's just so polarized and manipulated you know you see well-meaning people and maybe there's a little less of this than there was say 10 years ago but you know i remember becoming aware of sort of the so many well-meaning people engaging with conservation biology and invasion biology and, and removal of invasive species and so right. you get these well-meaning eco-minded people who end up getting together and volunteering to go spray roundup on a landscape right <clears throat> and you dig a little deeper and you realize oh all of the academic departments are funded by monsanto or bear that are prescribing this oh you know they're using the it's sort of like there's like this whole business model <laughs> underpinning that perspective of like what's good in a local area like where, where people are taking action they're like oh we want to improve our local landscapes so we need to go fight the invaders and they go out and they're you know they're fighting with you know essentially war chemicals to delete <laughs> this whole yeah. anyway i mean <clears throat> so i think we have to be very careful we have to be very thoughtful about where we base our definition of ecological health or regeneration or societal health and um from like where are we where is that sourcing from and and how sure are we that it's has a foundation that is um you know authentic and isn't manipulating us into a set of actions that may actually be really detrimental to our health yeah yeah so i guess a component or a complement of all these that we've been talking about is some kind of um you know kind of critical um um what's the phrase you know citizen science kind of approach but as you say it's difficult because um and that goes back to you know our slightly different takes on eco-modernism you know i think there's this kind of high modernism top-down you know trust you know the way science you know this whole distinction between science and scientism you know the way science has become a sort of code word for a certain type of corporate state um you know top-down high modernist project i mean you know you mentioned james scott earlier you know his sort of stuff on that you know the um seeing like a state kind of stuff i think is important so it's like how do you you know how do you how do you use that um you know that genuinely um incredible um knowledge base richness understanding that we've assembled um historically how do you how do you put that in the hands of 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 you know local citizen science um in an informative way um yeah i don't know you know interestingly i read a great book by dave goulson who's a, an insect specialist and academic here in the uk and i think as i understand it he got quite a lot of stick you know he basically a lot of his research 
showed that Roundup and other agrochemicals was a disaster for insect life. Um, and he got quite a lot of stick, um, you know, from the usual suspects for, for showing that. But, you know, the interesting thing about his book is that he, where he goes with that is not to say, oh, so let's blame the farmers or agriculture is a disaster, but, you know, actually articulating for more small scale farming and more sort of amateur, you know, home, you know, allotments, home growing. And the point he makes is that people don't tend to, you know, if you're producing food for your own household, you don't tend to cover it with agrochemicals, you know, partly, uh, partly because you don't need to generally on such a small scale, but also because you, you know, why would you, you know, you sort of intuitively know that it's not going to be good for you. So I kind of think, um, yeah, sort of um, accessing that knowledge without, um, yeah, without, without sort of going down that, um, you know, so we need something even more high tech and sort of, you know, get, get rid of our implication with ecology um, framing of the eco-modernists is, is important, but, you know, to be, to be conscious, like you said, of that, that kind of, you know, the, the, the kind of perverse way that some of those forms of ecological knowledge can play out in terms of, you know, the narratives around invasive species or whatever. Um, yeah, no, very interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, we do a lot of thinking and work on this angle of kind of citizen science and, you know, right, because if this vision of local communities defining ecological health for themselves and then generating kind of a crediting system that's tracking that as kind of a commoning activity that can also link to market activity, um, you know, from that framing, people need to have tools to do their own monitoring of the ecological commons, as it were, and to sort of, um, so, you know, I fully agree with that. And that is, you know, does require quite sophisticated information technology to do that well, um, especially if you really want to be radical and root the full ownership of that information technology as a value production process in the hands of the local community, meaning open source software, you know, um, ownership of the hardware that's running things, sort of like all of the different layers of things where then you can make a plausible guarantee of sort of information integrity and sort of the process. And that is such a, you know, that distributed, that distributed sort of more DIY citizen science level. Um, you know, it's just interesting how much friction there is and how much pushback there is to try to get that and how embedded into the bias that the, the society currently has that you, you know, you, the scientism, like you need the expert to do the things and you need the giant cloud computer and you need the, you know, you need all of these like giant centralized apparatus to do things, which is actually not so true. Like you can do a crazy amount with, you know, like a, a phone and a home computer and a local network. Um, if there's people who are sophisticated enough to run the systems, right. And to sort of like be innovating the systems. Do you have a sense of the long-term chronology of your thinking about this? I was thinking, you know, cause you mentioned indigenous knowledge earlier and I was thinking of a book like, um, I don't know if you know, Tyson Junker Porter's book Sand Talk. Um, he's, um, you know, uh, f writing from a, an Australian Aboriginal perspective. You know, one of the things I found interesting about you know, one of the things that stuck in my mind from what he said was that, um, you know, we need like really long term knowledge that you can't really you can't really write it down um, because writing is too ephemeral and, and I guess he would probably make the same critique of computational power that it has to be really encoded culturally into 
terms of things like, you know, totemic thinking about relationships with animals or, you know, sort of notions of song lines or, you know, a kind of um, a sort of mythic landscape in which humans are integrated with, um, you know, the, the, the animals and plants and the world they live in. You know, my feeling is that that's not that's not where we're at in the US, say, or in, uh, you know, here in the UK, that we need that, you know, that that much more um, empirical um, data gathering way of thinking. Um, but longer term, I think, you know, we need to move towards encoding it culturally in, in more you know in more sort of narrative form i suppose but yeah I, I don't know if that's um what you know where you're at with that sort of thing yeah um I, yeah i really like tyson's book i've yet to be able to talk to him in person but okay. i think i've also heard him speak a fair amount around sort of like blockchain technology and other things so i don't know that he would have such a you know i think as you said i think i, I mean yes i think we need to be um regenerating our culture in such a way as to re-embed our human experience in the you know mytho-poetic reality of culture generation and land stewardship and how we teach and you know and I have a lot of grief about that feels sometimes so far away to be able to as to be unachievable um so I, you know but I certainly would agree that it needs to happen and you know I I tend to think of the project that I'm working on as something like a four to five hundred year project right um, and, you know, at the end of the day, I actually think sort of more of a Gertian science approach where it's sort of like the calibration of the individual human as the instrument of science in a way is that's certainly where I think this needs to be going. And, you know, we live in a we live in a society in which, as you said, sort of like the the paradigm is this empirical, rational, you know, reductionist perspective. And, and I do cert I do believe that we can, you know, I guess this is going to sound this is you know and i'm gonna to have to hop off here in a second but you know i do believe that we can speak that language in a way that re-enchants our machine brains and the machine you know sort of the industrial and computation machine to be in love with life right but at the end of the day if That's we're right, gonna yeah. <laughs> if we're gonna make this happen it is certainly going to be rooted in a ritualized um day-to-day -day existence where we can tell beautiful stories and sing beautiful songs and remind ourselves of where we are where we're, where we're at and where we're yeah, going yeah no that's great i mean that's a great way of putting it in, i mean i think you know words like re-enchant and the and the time frame because we get so you know you know rightly so we get very um worked up about um you know net zero by 2050 or whatever but you know we need to i think that the, the the problem with that is is to say therefore we need to do whatever it takes you know the kind of ends justify means um kind of thinking around those those short-term carbon um, counting type exercises when I think, you know, yeah, it's great. We need long-term cultural projects, I think, um, you know, however you want to frame that and whatever, you know, whatever the tools for that, you know, I think that's the right way to go. Yeah, 100%. Well, it's been a real pleasure, Chris, to get to jam with you a little bit and uh, get to get to think with you a little bit and just kind of uh, dialogue about the edges, the edges of this big project that we're both working on here in, in, uh, in some yeah. way. No, I really enjoyed the conversation yeah really really informative uh, for me so um yeah i appreciate you inviting me on yeah absolutely and um definitely i'm excited to um i i haven't gotten to get my hands on the the copy of your new book yet but um, i'm excited to it's on order so when it becomes available it's going to get here and certainly
certainly, um, I enjoyed your last book, uh, Small Farm Future. So I'd certainly encourage folks who want to dig in and um, uh, to, to go grab your book. So, yeah. Yeah. So saying no to a farm-free future, it's a bit shorter and, um, you know, has a few more jokes in it. So uh, <laughs> hopefully um, hopefully it will be of interest to, to your listeners. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. Have a beautiful afternoon. Yeah. Thanks, Gregory. Yeah. Good talking with you. Yeah. Thank you.